will be reading from Psalm 33, verses 10 through 22. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we pray this morning that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, as we look at your word together. May it become life to us. May this not merely be something intellectual. May a spiritual transaction happen today. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome again. We're so glad that all of you are here, and if this is your first time at Fullness, welcome. Uh, I am doing a series called God and Country, a four-week series leading up to the election, which, if you haven't heard, we've got an election uh, coming up, uh, second Tuesday in November. Uh, I wanted us as a church, hopefully, to get a little perspective on where we are and what's going on. There's fear that is rampant. There's disgust that is being manifest. Uh, There's confusion all around. And so I wanted us to take a step back and get the big picture, hopefully, of where we are, where we're headed, what has God up to. And so let's look at this passage together from Psalm 33. Uh, I want to remind you that uh, from last week, um, if you didn't listen to last week's, I don't usually uh, push my own sermons, but I I would encourage you to listen to last week. Uh, It gives kind of a foundation of what I'm going to speak about today. To remember that our first allegiance is to God, to resist allowing national pride to overwhelm Christian wisdom, Uh, that we walk in the power of the Spirit, uh, to recognize that God's Word is primary in our lives, to resolve to pray for our leaders and not 
necessarily against them, which is some, something we, uh, I think, tend toward a little bit right now, and to respect those who are different than you. Uh, looking at various passages, I believe these are biblical principles on how we relate to our nation and our country, no matter what that country is. During the 1950s, the United States was consumed with fear. Uh, it was post-World War II, uh, the, it was the rise of communism, uh, there was a rampant fear around our country about where we were and what things were going and whether communism was a threat to overthrow the United States. And in that atmosphere of fear, Congress kind of gave a nod to God, if you would. The first thing they did was, in 1954, they added two words to the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, they, after one nation, they put under God. Uh, you may not know, but that wasn't added to the Pledge of Allegiance uh, to the flag, the Pledge to the flag until the mid-40s. When that happened, President Eisenhower had these words, and I'm going to just give them to you because they're not on the thing. From this day forward, the millions of our school children will daily proclaim in every city and town, every village and rural school, the dedication of our nation and our people to the Almighty. In this way, we are reaffirming the transcendence of religious faith in America's heritage and future. In this way, we shall constantly strengthen those spiritual weapons which forever will be our country's most powerful resource in peace or in war. Sixty years, a lot changes. From a recognition that these are our most powerful weapons in peace or in war, to a day where religious liberty is under attack. The official motto of the United States was adopted two years later in an alternative replacement, uh, our national motto, so to speak, used to be e pluribus unum, which is out of many one. It was always unofficial. It was never an official motto. But in 1956, what had been printed on U.S. coins since 1864 and on paper money uh, beginning in 1957 was the phrase, in God we trust. In God we trust as a national motto and on U.S. currency as well as the phrase under one nation, under God, almost from the day that they were adopted has been under attack in the court systems. It was first challenged officially by a ruling called Aronau versus United States in 1970. And in this decision, the U.S. Court of Appeals says this. It is quite obvious that the national motto and the slogan on coinage and currency, In God We Trust, has nothing whatsoever to do with the establishment of religion. Its use of patriotic, excuse me, its use is of patriotic or ceremonial character and bears no true resemblance to a governmental sponsorship of a religious exercise. I don't know if you can read between the legal language there, but uh, let me give you another ruling that happened in 2004. In, uh, I won't give you the ruling, we really don't care. 
but and the U.S. Court of Appeals said this, these acts of ceremonial deism are protected from establishment clause scrutiny chiefly because they have lost through rote repetition any significant religious content. Now are you reading between the lines a little bit? Do you know what they're saying? It's meaningless. The phrase, in God we trust, or one nation under God, because we say it so often, it carries absolutely no meaning. It's just a phrase. I was, um, I didn't watch many of the debates. I watched enough to feel, but um, it fascinated me that at the end of brutally attacking one another, both candidates would say, God bless America. Why? We as Christians, that means something to us. But in general, it is meaningless. It is a phrase that just is like, I'm done. Hope, hope we make it. The question I have for us, and I entitled this in, and then left it blank, in blank we trust, is this. In whom or what or where do we find our trust? And to me, this is essential because it, it really speaks to who we are, not only as a nation, but as a church. Now, I, I really, I can pray for our nation. I intercede for our nation. I, I'm going to vote um, in the election. I encourage you to vote in the election. I understand all the, the qualms we have about what's going on right now, but I, I'm going to do my part in the United States. I'm going to do my part as a citizen. More importantly, I'm going to do my part as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven to pray. When couples come to me for premarital counseling, I'm going to extend this just a little bit. Hang with me. When, I, when couples come to me for premarital counseling, one of the things I always find fascinating is that um, they're, they're in love. I mean, really, they're not going to be there. If they're not in love, we got a problem right off the start, right? But they're in love, and so they're talking to each other. But I always sense this thing where the guy is just lucky, feels lucky to have the girl. And the girl feels like, I love this guy, but there's some things that I don't like very much. And when we get married, I'm going to change those. It's almost inevitable. It is almost inevitable that there's this sense, I'm just, the guy's just saying, I don't care, I'm just lucky, she's breathing, uh, it's a girl, and we're going to get married. And the guy, the guy is more, uh, the girl is more like, you know, he really is a great guy, but there are some things that I'm going to change. And one of the first things we've learned, I did a lot of premarital counseling with Cheryl, one of the first things we've learned is to say to them, whatever you're like now, you'll probably just be more like that as you get older. And if you have any illusions about changing this person, get, it, get over it. Because here's the truth in spiritual life. You can barely change yourself. I mean, really. You can barely change who you are, and you have absolutely no ability to change another person. 
You can't do it. So what, what do we try and teach them? It's not a hopeless situation. What we try and teach them is this. Change yourself. Pray for your spouse. Because the greatest weapon in your warfare is prayer. It is not condemnation. It's not manipulation. It's not all of those tools that we sometimes use to try and change another person. I, in a national sense, your best hope, our best hope is prayer. It's really our only hope in my conviction because unless we have a spiritual move of God in our nation, things are headed down a path that we're not going to be able to stop. It's like trying to stop water going down a hill. We're not going to be able to do it. And no matter how hard we try through other, what I would call manipulative, even political means, I, I don't, it's been tried and found wanting. But what you have, what I have, is something that's unfathomable, and that's the power of the Spirit at work within us. We can join in with the plans and purposes of God in order to see things change by prayer. Question is, where do you trust? And again, my question is to us today, in whom do we trust? Because, see, if we don't really trust in our God, and no matter how many times we sing it, it's really not going to have the effect that we need to have. This psalm that Nancy read to us, the Lord foils the plan, plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people. But the plans of the Lord stand firm for how long? The purposes of his heart through all generations. Here's what I want us to see this morning. I, I want us to look just for a second at what I'll call the prevailing culture in which we live. And I'm not just saying this is us. This is culture, period, throughout the ages because the psalmist points it out. This is what culture looks like. But God has a church. He has a people called out after his own name. He is a king over a kingdom. His plans will not be stopped. We get to join in with him. So we're going to look at the prevailing culture, but I want to look at the persevering church as well, who we are, because I want to look at where truth is. So hang on. I got, I got a lot to cover in the time, that we, the time that we have. First is this culture that we are looking at, the prevailing culture in which we live. Verses 16 and 17, David says, No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. <clears throat> Listen, I, I could go on for the rest of the service talking about the, 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 the culture in which we live. I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a typical pastor, and I got statistics that, you know, we could go on forever, and pretty much I can make them say whatever I want anyway. But we got tons of statistics talking about where our culture is, and usually the church sticks to the one that has to do about immorality, you know, divorce rate, um, teen pregnancy, people sleeping together. But to me, see, immorality is just, it's, 
it's not the cause, it's just a symptom of what's going on in our culture. And, 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 and at times, I think we're, we're, we're shooting at the wrong target. Because what happens in this me mindset is I want to have all my needs met, whatever they are. Financial, sexual, I mean, we just go down the, we in the church get all hung up on the immorality issue. Not, I'm not saying we shouldn't be moral. What I'm saying is I think we're shooting at the wrong target. That we need to relook at what is the mindset of a prevailing culture that leads us to a place where that says, I just don't give a flip. I'll do whatever I want because it's all about having my personal needs met. And the reason I want to point this out to us is because we live in this culture, and we pick up this stuff. And then we really make it pretty, and a lot of times we make it look like church. Are, are you with me? In other words, we adopt it and say these same things, but we, we, we make them look prettier. We dress them up with religious language. And if we're not careful, there'll be the same traps we fall into that the the rest of the culture falls into. Let me give you the example. First of all, there's a false sense of strength. A false sense of strength. The psalmist says, a horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. What the psalmist, the horse is a picture of strength. Uh, in Old Testament times, the, horse, the people who had horses, you're at a big advantage. Now, we don't really, we're, we're not in the same mindset because we live in a different culture, but the psalmist is saying, listen, you may have all the horses you want. You may have all the horsepower, so to speak, that you want. We still measure things in horsepower. Horsepower that you want, but it is a vain hope for deliverance. That is not where your strength lies. We as a culture, what we say is this, I'll do it myself. I'll do it myself. I am the source of my strength. I am the source of my hope. I am the source of my deliverance. We are a self-sufficient, independent people who prides ourselves on our self-sufficiency and independence. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm speaking to myself as much as you. We can't help but catch this in what we and what we do. It's all around us. When our nation first started 200 and whatever years ago, our, we were so weak as a nation. I mean, we were rebelling against what was the greatest known military power on the planet at the time. Uh, we, we have no resources, really. We, we, we've been a colony for so long that we realized as a nation that if if the grace of God, and you'll see it over and over again in our founding documents, if the grace of God doesn't get us there, we're not going to make it. We are so far past that. We believe we are now the strongest nation on the planet. And as a result, there's a false sense of security. We believe we're safe. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. 
we not only believe we can do it individually, but we believe collectively as a nation that we are untouchable. You know, until the last, what, 15 years since 9-11. I mean, prior to that, we didn't believe, we didn't believe anything could bad happen within the geographical borders of our country. I mean, we still don't believe a war will come here. The statistics are overwhelming that Americans believe that we are untouchable as far as a military might is concerned. We believe in our strength. We believe in our financial security. Despite what has happened over the last seven or eight years, we, we still believe that we are financially secure and in some senses untouchable. The lessons of 1929 in the 30s of how wealth can be wiped out overnight are not really on our scope. We don't understand the whole idea of kingship. We don't understand what it means to be under a dictatorial rule where the king can say whatever he wants and everybody else just has to follow. We don't understand that. We get security, if we get security, from anywhere other than our Lord Jesus Christ, it is a false sense of security. Bottom line, you just look around. What is it that brings you strength and security? That thing is an idol if it's not God. There's also, as a result of both of these, I'm just preaching this passage, there's a false sense of sovereignty. Sovereignty. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on the earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. Here's the question. Who is in control? Who is in control? God is in control. From heaven, he looks down. As I said last week, on November 9th, the day after the election, here's the one thing I know, God will still be in control. He'll still be in control, no matter what everything else looks like, he's still in charge. See, we, we don't, we, one of the things that bothers us about this election is the whole presidential stuff, but in a real sense, most of us aren't bothered because we believe we're really in control. Ah, you know, whatever happens, happens. So some people are, some people are really bothered and others don't really care because they're like, I, you know, I'm going to make my own way anyway. I'm in control. We have this false sense that we're in control. We think we're in charge. But in truth, if we're not careful. We're just, we're like the days of judges where everybody as a result does what's right in their own sight. We need to understand that our strength, our security, our sovereignty is in him. Somebody get excited, say amen, hallelujah. <laughs> this week I was wandering various places of the church, and I happened to accidentally come upon this picture, which is, I'm, this is not a scavenger hunt, don't go looking for this. But this is a calendar that is somewhere on our church property. And here's what it says. The American spirit is unbreakable. We pick this up. We, we believe it. 
We, 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 without even thinking about it, we put it wherever. Because we believe our strength, our security, our sovereignty is in us. Unfortunately, that's probably true that the American spirit is unbreakable. And because it's unbreakable, we are not receptive to the message of God's grace and mercy. Because if you're not broken, who needs grace and mercy? And, by the way, it's by grace you're saved. Proverbs 16 says, All a man's ways seem right in his own eyes. And then chapter 14 says, There is a way that seems right to a man. Do you know what the next phrases are in those? It's going to lead to death. So, if we hang on to our prevailing culture, we, we're headed not to a road of life, but of death. So, what do we as a church do? Next week, by the way, Greg Rogers is going to be here. David's dad, who's been a part of our church, he's going to preach on Jonah. Then the next week, I'm going to come back and I'm going to preach on what can we do. Uh, I don't want to leave you, besides pray, which I've already given you that, uh, what can we do? What can I as an individual do in the Sunday before the election? Then guess what I'm going to preach on the Sunday after election? I'm going to preach on being thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Because no matter what happens, we're going to be thankful. We may not be happy, but we're going to be thankful. Unfortunately, it says rejoice in the Lord always right before that too. All right, let's look at the persevering church. In the minutes we've got left, uh, Psalm 8, uh, 33, 18 and following says, But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. I don't know about you, but I really want the eyes of the Lord on us, on me, to deliver us from death, keep us alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. How's the church going to persevere? We're going to put our hope, our trust in him. Here's my premise for the, the, the remainder here. It's this. Trust comes from truth. Deception comes from lies. So, if we're going to trust in our God, then we have to believe the truth of what God says to us. If we're not going to trust, this is the same way in relationships, by the way. Um, trust is built by truth. You let lies enter in, and trust is broken. It's hard to maintain. It's a gift from God, really, trust. But ultimately, we have to rest on his truth. And to emphasize this, to illustrate it, and to give you the high points of it, I want to talk about a story that you read in your Bible reading this past week from the end of 1 Kings, chapter 22. I'm going to summarize the story. It's a long chapter in, really two chapters, in the end of Kings, but it is, it's an incredible story. If you remember... The nation of Israel gets 
broken up into two parts. You have, for those of you who are taking Old Testament class right now, this is a good lesson. Hang on to this. Uh, the nation is divided into two. Ten tribes to the north form the nation of Israel. Uh, a series of kings not from the line of David. Bad kings, wicked kings are over Israel. In the southern, there are only two tribes. It's called the nation of Judah. And the descendants of David continue to rule over the nation of Judah in the south. At the end of Kings, 1 Kings, we see the wicked king Ahab. You know his wife's name? Yeah, Ahab and Jezebel, a wonderful royal couple, uh, are our king and queen in the north. In the south, Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat is a guy who's trying to follow after God. He's, he, his father was named Asa, and he's turned the nation around, and he's trying to follow God. But as is what happens in those days, Jehoshaphat marries Ahab's daughter, trying to form some sort of alliance because the nations will be stronger together than apart. I'm going to quit holding my hands like that. So one day, Jehoshaphat goes to visit his in-laws, uh, Ahab and Jezebel, and Ahab says, hey, let's go out to battle together and battle this nation over here. And Jehoshaphat, you know, wanting to be a good son-in-law, says, okay, uh, sounds like a great plan. Do you have some prophets we could talk to who could hear from God? And Ahab's like, I got prophets. I got like 450 over here. So these prophets come in. Ahab says, hey, we're thinking about going to battle. Should we go into battle? And they say, oh, great king, go out. You're going to do it. You're going to kill him. You'll wipe him from the face of the earth. They go on and on and on about how Ahab's going to be victorious. Jehoshaphat, who, again, his heart is toward God. He's just, he's struggling here. He says, hey, he senses something's not right. So he says, you got a lot of prophets. Have you got a prophet of God around? that I can listen to. Because see, let me give you a clue here. Not everybody who's a prophet is really a prophet. You can take that one home later. But so he says, do you have a prophet of God we could hear from? So I know a guy, but he never says anything good about me. Every time I call him, he says something bad. Joseph had says, well, you think we could get him in here? They go and find Micaiah. Micaiah's on his way in. And as he's on his way in, the other prophets kind of corner him and say, listen, we've already told the king he's going to be victorious. So back us up. And Micaiah says something basically, look, I can only say what the Lord tells me to say. I can't, I can't say anything else. Goes into the presence of the king. King goes, hey, prophet of God, are we going to be victorious in battle? Micaiah says, yeah, go out. You're going to kick him. Do great. You know, it kind of sarcastically just says, even Ahab, a wicked king, says, I know this guy's lying to me. So he says, haven't I told you before, only tell me the truth? To which Micaiah says, I saw sheep scattered without a shepherd. And, Micaiah, and Ahab turns to Jehoshaphat and says, didn't I tell you this guy never tells me anything good? Never. He never gives me a good word. And so then Ahab gets mad at Micaiah. Micaiah, then he ramps it up. 
And he says, let me tell you what God has shown me. If you go into battle, you will not return alive. To which Ahab gets mad. Somebody comes up, and then Micaiah goes on. I'm going longer on the story. It is an incredible story. He goes on and says, I saw God say to a demon spirit, lying spirit, you go down and put lies in these prophets' mouths to deceive the king. Now, our theology gets all screwed up at this point, if you think about this too deeply. But in the end, the prophets get mad. One of the generals slaps Micaiah. He, he says, listen, you can slap me all you want. Put me in jail. But if he comes back alive, if he goes into battle, then I'm a liar, and you can do with me what you want to. Now, that's a prophetic word, right? It says, I'll, I'll stay right here. If he comes back alive, I'm a liar. The story goes on. Ahab knows Micaiah is a truth-telling prophet. So he says to Jehoshaphat, hey, why don't you wear the royal robes? We'll go out into battle. I'm going to dress down for this party. You take all the glory, and I'm going to dress down for this little battle we're going into. I mean, it's an unbelievable story. Some enemy marksman just pulls his bow back with an arrow in it, shoots it in the air. Out of nowhere, it hits Ahab and kills him. Army scatters. Jehoshaphat gets away alive, barely. Here's the part. I, I want us to understand the difference between truth and lies because we are presented with these all the time, and we need to understand if we're going to walk in trust with God, we need to receive the truth of God. So let me give you these points, and I just want to highlight them quickly, but I want you to meditate on them later. The first is this. It is, it is better to be divided by truth than united by lies. When Harvard was founded, this was their slogan. This was their motto, Veritas Christo et Ecclesia, which means truth for Christ and the church. Its crest had three books on it. One was face down, which, limit, which was to symbolize the limit to human knowledge. That instead, truth comes by church and by Christ. In recent decades, that book that was turned down has been turned up. And now, if you have the slogan of Harvard, I have a Harvard shirt, and all it says on it is Veritas. The idea being that truth can be obtained through the human mind. That all we need is our own intellect, our own power. Where does truth come from? Proverbs says it clear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Listen, I, I, I think unity is a good thing. Anybody here against unity? I think unity is a good thing. But we can be united by the wrong stuff. Okay. I'm going to move on. I, I mean, we, you know, Hitler said no one is going to tell the vic ask the victor if he told the truth. His big lie is what united the German people. He united people around a lie. Didn't matter if it was true or not. It, listen, it is better to be divided for the truth. By that I mean people to, to say... you. Second point is this, better to speak the truth that hurts and then heals 
than lies which comfort and then destroy. Proverbs says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Bottom line, just because somebody's sweet-talking you don't mean they're telling the truth. You'd rather have someone who speaks the truth in your, in your life. It's better to be disliked for telling the truth than loved for telling a lie. This is a tough one. I mean, we all want to be loved, right? So what do we do? Generally, in our human weakness, we tell someone what they want to hear. And I, I'm not talking about being brutal here. Paul, Paul says, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? I, he, and again, I'm not trying to say, here. okay, here's what we should do. We should all go out and speak the truth in such a way that we don't give a flip what people think. Now, Paul also says, instead, speaking the truth in what? In love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. I mean, people, we need wisdom here. But what I'm talking about is standing for the truth. Micaiah got called into this situation. He knew 450 had gone before him, and that if you wanted to be in, he had to hang on to the truth. I mean, hang on to what they were saying, but instead he speaks the, the truth. You know, I, I feel like Jack Nicholson in that movie, you can't handle the truth kind of thing. I mean, because that's the way many of us are. We really can't handle the truth. It's better to stand alone with the truth than to be wrong with the multitude. <clears throat> I'll say this statement, and then you can just dwell on it later. It's no great insight, but most people won't tell you this. Um, the majority is frequently wrong. Now, see, in a democratic society, we don't believe that. Well, if the most vote on it, then that must mean it's right. I can tell you this. The Bible is replete with examples, which shows that the majority is frequently wrong wrong. Noah went into the ark a minority. Well, it came out a majority, but he went in a minority. I mean, the rest of the world was the spies that went into the nation of Israel. Twelve. Ten came back saying, we can't do it. Only two said, no, God said we can and we will. If you're a young person here, can I encourage you to stand for the truth rather than what the majority is trying to push you toward? Stand for the truth. And that goes for us adults as well. This, better to temporarily fail and yet ultimately succeed with the truth than temporarily succeed and yet ultimately fail with the lie. I know that's a mouthful. By the way, I stole that from Woodrow Wilson. He said this, I would rather temporarily fail with a cause that will ultimately succeed than to temporarily succeed with a cause that will ultimately fail. We don't. We, th this goes against our nature. We want success and we want it right now at any cost. We will worry about the consequences long term later. 
We need to speak the truth of the words of God. The problem is to many, truth is subjective. It's always changing. It's not. There is an objective truth of God. And we need to stand in this truth. And again, I understand. Please hang with me here. I hope you have been in fullness long enough to understand. I'm not talking about being ugly here. I mean, the church has been ugly long enough. Saying we have the truth. You know, holding signs that say, hey, so-and-so, you're going to go to hell. You know, if you're, if you're such and such, if you believe this, or... Listen, we don't need that. We need to present the truth in love, by the grace of God. It needs to be winsome. Doesn't, I'm not asking you to, 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 to stand up and shout ugly things to people. What I'm saying is stand on the truth of God. Stand on the word of God. Stand in love. Stand in grace. But take a stand. Don't get blown around by every wind that comes your way because the prevailing culture is going to pull you to itself. We have God's word the precepts of truth. We have God's Son in Jesus Christ, the person of truth. We have God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the power of truth in us. It's a relationship with Him. Now, let's lean into that relationship and stand with Him. I believe the phrase, in God we trust, should be absolutely who we are as the people of God. What our nation does, we can't change, but we can pray for. We can pray that God would send revival into this nation so that indeed our hearts would be turned toward him, so that in him we will trust. Lord, we pray this morning that uh, our trust, our hope, our security would be found in you. Lord, we acknowledge today that uh, we live in an age when truth is being compromised all around us. Lord, we ask this morning that we would be a people whose trust would be reestablished. Lord, Lord, I pray, I, I do pray for our country. I do pray that the hearts of people will be turned toward you, that you pour out your presence on this nation in a way I'm not asking for prosperity. I'm not even asking for safety. Lord, what I'm asking for is hearts that will be open to the word of God, to the person of truth, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, show us how we can play our part and do what you're calling us to do. Thank you, Lord. Stand up with me, if you would, for just a minute. Before we leave, uh, we're going to have some ministry teams come down to the front. I'm not asking you necessarily to respond to the sermon. This is, I think, more for you to reflect on to see where your truth, where your trust lies. But you may be here today. You may have come with another need, a, prayer, a need for healing, direction, uh, freedom from a burden. 
Maybe something else in your heart and in your life that you need prayer for. Right now, our ministry teams are going to come to the front. We're going to give you a moment. We're going to pray. I know the hour's late, but if you need prayer, come and take it. Then in a minute, I'll dismiss everyone. And then those who still need prayer can stay around and pray for as long as God needs us to. But in the moment we have, before we leave, let's just refocus on the Lord. Mitch, lead us in a song of worship. If you need prayer, just come to one of these teams at the front. visit with one another, please do so in the foyer. It's a beautiful day outside on whatever the outside veranda thing is called. We haven't got a name for it. Call it the Bart Brookings Veranda. Anyway, if you would like to visit with one another, go on out. If you'd like to stay in here and worship and pray, please feel free. We'll leave this as a sacred place for people who are receiving, receiving prayer. Now to him who is able do immeasurably more than all we can ask or even imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen God bless you I love you have a wonderful day in the Lord if you're leaving please do so quietly